Welcome to the Naked Truth. Peace to you. We're going to pick up where we left off in the book of Matthew. That's the first book in the New Testament um, at chapter 17. Um, so without further ado, let's begin. Um, verse 1. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, John, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. So we're talking about Jesus. So that's your first clue that we're in the red letters. We're into the Gospels. We're going to be discussing something that happened with Jesus. And like I've said before, Jesus's words only appear in, a, in six books of the 60 plus books of the Bible, a tenth, a tithe of the entire Bible. I believe that's for us Christians specifically, because like we've gone over before, there's lots of different religions mentioned in the Bible, um, from witchcraft at the beginning to Judaism next, although there's some in between, um, to the Christian red letters, to Catholicism that comes afterward, and even a mention of, of a, a prophecy of Islam in the middle of them. So there's lots of different religions mentioned throughout the Bible. They're not all dedicated. The whole Bible is not dedicated to one religion specifically. So at Saturday, that's why we're focusing on the red letters, because I self-identify as a Christian. And who better to get our marching orders from than Jesus Christ himself, since Christianity is named for Christ, not for uh, Paul with with Catholicism or the Old Testament folks or anyone else in the New Testament. It's supposed to be about, be about what Jesus says. So that's what we focus on. It's our Saturday night. So it's Jesus there, um, and he's with some of his some of the disciples. That's who the other people, Peter, James, and John, those who are mentioned there, some of his disciples, and he's separated from the rest of them with just those disciples. Um, verse 2, and he was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. So um, a transfiguration would be, uh, it sounds like it's described as if someone turned on a lamp inside of you and you were illuminated. That's what I picture when I think of a transfiguration. Um, and, but whatever the case may be, however it appeared, that's what's happening according to the narrator telling the story to us. Um, at least passing on the Gospel of Matthew to us, that that's what happened in that moment, um, that he was luminous. Uh, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. So that's verse 3. Moses and Elijah, those are two Old Testament figures uh, with two mysterious endings. Moses is the same Ten Commandments Moses that we're reading about on our Monday and Wednesday readings. And Elijah is one of the Old Testament prophets that we haven't gotten to his uh, story yet in the old, in our Monday and Wednesday readings, but God willing, we'll get there soon. But his uh, Moses's death is sort of mysterious because, according to the narrative, once we get to it, um, he dies and the Lord buries him, not people, and so people don't actually know where his grave is, according to the narrative. But another mysterious part is. Once he's buried, the five books of Moses still continue. Those first five books of the Bible are called the five books of Moses. But how is this Moses still writing books if he's already deceased and buried? So um, that's kind of mysterious. Um, and the Elijah one is even more amazing because his he doesn't actually die, according to the narrative in the Old Testament. Instead, he's carried away in a chariot. In fact, since we've read about it before... 
while we're at it now, let's go ahead and well, let's we'll get to it once we get to some of the red letters. Let's just keep reading. But but Elijah is the one who sort of gets carried away in what we'd call in modern terms a UFO and an unidentified flying object. Although I guess it would be more like an unidentified aerial phenomenon. It's the new way of saying UFOs um, because it covers more things than just um, the um, flying objects. But either way, that's his narrative, what happens to him. Uh, But we'll read on. Verse 4, then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So that's a mysterious statement, too, because Moses and Elijah, uh, Elijah's storyline, his narrative happens hundreds, if not thousands of years before the appearance of Jesus and his ministry here in the Bible. And Moses' narrative, his storyline, appears even further away than that at the beginning of the Bible, thousands and thousands of years before the appearance of um, Jesus and his ministry. Um, Though I believe as Christian, you know, as a Christian, that Jesus, you know, is timeless there from the beginning, only his ministry in the flesh um, is what appears in the New Testament after all the books of the Old Testament. Um, But the significance of that would be to me is how do they know that that's Moses and Elijah? It's not like they walk with them. It's not like they have um, photos of them, or at least that we know of, or any way of being able to identify them. But somehow they know that that's Moses and Elijah, unless this is the narrator um, inserting this after the fact, you know, with 2020 hindsight, like after it was revealed to them, after that Jesus and the disciples came down from the mountain, he let them know that that's who they were and that that's what happened. And that, um, and then, so the narrator is writing it in hindsight that that's who it was. And that's who they wanted to build, um, um, build, um, monuments for tabernacles for that's what they're, um, what they're going to be talking about. I mean, that's what they're referring to when they're saying, let us build tabernacles. There are three for them. Um, It seems to me he's saying, let's build monuments or either places of worship for the three of them, for Moses, Elijah, and and, um, for Jesus. But for him to have said that, and it's in quotes, means that when he said that, he knew that that's who they were at that time. So that, again, it doesn't quite make sense. How would Peter know that those who those people are since they existed way before him? Um, and it doesn't say anything that they identified themselves once they made their appearance. Like they showed up to Jesus also in glorified, transfigured bodies or however they showed up while Jesus was transfigured. It's not like they said, hey, Jesus, it's me, Elijah. Hey, it's me, Moses. Or even if they did, it's not like they did that and introduced themselves to the disciples, at least according to the narrative. Yet somehow here, they uh, Peter knows that that's who the two people who appeared to Jesus are. Whatever the case may be, that's Peter's suggestion is that he makes monuments basically to the three of them. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. So there's a couple of things about that statement. First, it's saying that a voice just came out of nowhere. So and then declares itself to be, uh, or to be, declares Jesus as the one who's speaking, son. So that sort of contradicts what we've heard 
and other parts of the Bible where no one's heard God's voice at any time. At least that's according to Jesus. Um, and then in another place, no one's seen his form either. So like at the beginning of the book of John, chapter one, you'll see it says there that no one's seen his voice or heard, or heard his voice or seen his form at any time. So it kind of contradicts that unless this is unless that was said before this moment, which is possible. My memory is not exact on that. So maybe this happened after Jesus had already had that confrontation with the people because that's what it was. It was he was being confronted by um, some of the holy folks, the Bible thumpers, so to speak, even though it wasn't actually the Bible. But um, and Jesus had to clarify and let them know, no, they haven't heard his heard God's voice or seen his form uh, at any time. So it's possible that the timeline is uh, is what's, you know, affect what's at work here. That maybe Jesus said that before this voice happened. But this isn't the first time where uh, the voice from heaven um, claimed Jesus as the son of God, basically. So another way that that could be true, I would think, is that the voice they're hearing, because Jesus, again, when Jesus hears, because it does, that voice comes more than once and more than twice. It happened when Jesus was baptized. A voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And now the voice is telling them, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. The emphasis being that we should hear what Jesus has to say. The gospel, the red letters, hear what Jesus has to say. Focus on that. There's even an exclamation point to let us know with emphasis that's what our focus should be on, on Jesus' words, to hear him. Um, but, they, but then it happens again. Um, oh, it slipped my mind just that quick. Um, oh, and Jesus says, this voice didn't come because of me, but for your sakes. Um, it happens at another time, I think in the book of John, but at least three times that it happens. And the way that I think that it could be true, that it's still the voice of God Almighty speaking, but not, or at least it's the message of God Almighty speaking without actually being God's voice would be, and it may sound crazy, but some sort of intermediary, either a device that's not explained or uh, an angel or something like that, that's actually declaring it without it actually being God's voice, still being God's message. Whatever the case may be, it's um, what happened uh, according to the narrative. And um, so they're getting emphasis, we're getting emphasis that, uh, that we should focus on what it is Jesus has to say. And it's happened now, like I said, two or three times. And I think that's for us Christians to recognize that's where we're, we're, we're supposed to be tuning into. That's who we're supposed to be hearing. That's who we're supposed to be listening to, Jesus, to hear him. Um, verse 6, and when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. So you can imagine that. Uh, you hear a voice coming from out of nowhere, out of heaven, no less, um, declaring something like that mightily. I could see how that would be terrifying and make you kind of afraid that maybe you're about to meet the maker. Um, so whatever, however it happened, it was enough to terrify the disciples, even though they had the Savior right there in a transfigured form and with two other divine or at least supernatural beings there with them. Verse 7, but Jesus came and touched them and said, arise and do not be afraid. So they fell on their faces in fear. Jesus has now um, shown up or gotten to them to comfort them and let them know, no, no, don't be afraid. Um, verse 8, when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So in that moment, just that quick, 
they've had an experience, a supernatural experience, not only with Jesus, but with two Old Testament, as we'd call them, figures. One that has died, one that was carried away, uh, and one that they have not heard or seen, God Almighty, presumably. Um, all in that moment, they were blessed to get to see or have access to that kind of moment. And so they were afraid. Now they've opened their eyes and they see the moment has passed and it's just Jesus with them now. Verse 9, now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. So that leads me to believe that again, it must have been in that moment that somehow Peter realized that uh, that's who appeared to Jesus, that it was Elijah and Moses. Um, how again, I don't know how he'd know that, but um, somehow in that moment he knew it because otherwise... Why would um, Jesus have told them the television to no one until, a, you know, a later time, until his resurrection, basically? And notice he said he called he says it in the third person, son of man. He doesn't say television to no one until I am risen from the dead. Instead, he says television to no one until the son of man is is is, is risen from the dead. Excuse me. And I think that's he says it that way for clarity so that once it's documented for the story so that it would make sense to people reading it and understanding it or trying to understand it in the future so that it would make sense because it reads differently if he had said tell the vision to no one to until i and it's it's subtle and it's slight but it's there there's a difference in those two in saying it those ways that's why i think he said it the way he did and i think that it's also to affirm that when he says the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, um, but in a future tense. Uh, um, I would think of it as a, a title he's going to uh, um, assume or, you know, fulfill at another time. Son in capitalized meaning Son of God and of meaning from and man uh, or among and then man humanity saying he's the son of God in the form of a human I think that's what why he said it that way um, but he's telling them the message he's telling them is um, to uh, sit tight on that to keep that on the low don't share that yet wait till the appropriate time to share that part of the big picture of the storyline of the plot unfolding verse 10 and his disciples asked him saying why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first so this is where we can go back to the Elijah um, part of the story so I've already said the Elijah and I think it's in the book of Kings where it appears let's see though um, well we'll wait till Jesus answers them first so first they're saying what about they're basically asking what about the prophecy because the they're referring to what we call the Old Testament and the scriptures of the Old Testament that um, say in their prophecies that at the coming of the Messiah Christ, as we call him Jesus, um, that at that coming, before that coming, certain things are supposed to happen. That And one of those things is that Elijah, the Old Testament prophet that I told you was carried away, will appear again. So they're saying, well, why do they, well, they're saying, how does that prophecy make sense that Elijah is supposed to come again before you get here? Um, so Jesus is going to answer them. Verse 11, Jesus answered and said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. So Jesus is affirming that that prophecy from the Old Testament is true, that Elijah does come first before 
the um before the uh son of man comes well first the word first in some versions of the bible isn't in isn't included um it's i'm using the blueletterbible.org website uh new king james version uh, of the bible because it it's the easiest to read for me um without so much old english language and also it includes the red letters so you can see when jesus is speaking when someone else is speaking because remember what jesus tells us what the will of god is to know concerning the doctrine whether it is from god or whether i speak on my own authority one of the clearest ways to see if someone's actually as a christian if someone's actually bringing us a message from god is if a Christian message from God is if it's something Christ said, so it will appear in those red letters. That's why I like that version of the Bible. Um, and if it's not in red letters, then it's not coming from Christ. It's someone speaking on their own authority, which you're free to believe, free to embrace. It may even have some truth to it, but you still have to understand that it's not from God. It's not a gospel truth, in other words. It's not something that you should, I would recommend that you apply to your soul's salvation even though there it may there may be validity validity to it like for instance some of the proverbs um there's lots of wisdom in the proverbs but that still doesn't make them a gospel message from god that would affect our salvation or that applies to our salvation so there's a difference that's why i like that version of the bible, this version of the bible all that being said the word first is eliminated or not included in some versions of the bible so that it it changes what um, the prophecy is. It would, instead of saying, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things, instead it would read, indeed, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. So, meaning not necessarily before Christ comes, but coming indeed. Either way, the prophecy is, uh, Jesus is affirming the prophecy from the Old Testament. And while we're at it, let's go ahead and find where that is if you um, want to look it up yourself it's in the book of second kings that's in the old testament and it'll give you the ufo story as it's called um chapter 2 verse 11 um and i'll just read one snippet from it where he gets carried away um so second kings chapter 2 verse 11 then it happened as they continued on and talked so it's elijah that's the elder and elisha that's who's with him sort of like the teacher and the apprentice they're um traveling and elijah's getting ready ready to end his ministry he suffered being chased down and hunted down by the governmental authorities just trying to deliver the message that he's of the prophecies he's receiving from god and um it's wearied him it's tired him out he's had it he's he's frustrated and just about had enough so um he's prayed basically that God, it's enough. He, he can't take it anymore, basically. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he's saying at to this point. Because First Kings is basic, is based on mostly Elijah's ministry and then and the miracles that happened under with um uh, that were worked through him and the different prophecies that he uh proclaimed. That's what happened in first the book of First Kings. And in Second Kings, you see this is just about the beginning, it's just chapter two. This is him ending his ministry and sort of passing on the mantle to Elisha, who's, like I said, sort of like his apprentice. So they're walking and talking. And then so that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire. 
and separated the two of them. So that's what I was saying. It's like a UFO, a chariot, meaning something that you can travel in appears and it says of fire. So that means it could be fiery or if you think of like um, space shuttles, the fire is underneath them and that's what accelerates them. And although this is something supernatural or something, some sort of technology that's not explained, it could be either one um, as far as the fire goes and separated the two of them. So the fiery chariot appeared and separated Elijah from Elisha and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So again, that's like a UFO. He's carried away in some flying object and that's basically most that's about all of the story that you get um from the narrative there of what happens to elijah not a death at all and yet you see now he's appeared again in the new testament hundreds if not thousands of years later to be a part of the gospel story of what's happening with jesus and in plain english that sounds to me like what we understand as reincarnation as someone living at one time and then getting the opportunity to uh, have a, a, a second go around or at least um, reincarnated with a second uh, live life again. Um, and we sort of, I sort of mentioned this in one of the previous readings recently about the uh, epic movie, 2001, A Space Odyssey, where the person travels through their journey in life and then at the end of the movie you see the person starts again as an infant in the womb getting ready to be born again from space or the abyss or out there somewhere the universe and then just starting the journey all over again that's what it brings to mind to me um of what um may have happened with this what happens with the reincarnation story but either way however it happened it seems to me that's what's happening here it's talking about elijah being reincarnated as john the baptist and to affirm that let's go on to the next verse verse 12 of matthew chapter 17 but i say to you that elijah has come already and they did not know him but did to him whatever they wished likewise the son of man is also about to suffer at their hands so jesus is saying here that the prophecy was true that elijah does come before the um before the um before jesus does before the christ does before messiah comes he's saying it's true that that is true that elijah does come and perform that role um and that it's already happened and people didn't even recognize it when it happened again it sounds like reincarnation even though there's no death mentioned in Elijah's story that we just read him being carried away in the fiery chariot, Jesus is making it clear that somehow, cosmically, supernaturally, miraculously, however you want to think of it, he's come again already and the people didn't recognize him. And he's saying, and just like that, just like they didn't recognize Elijah's coming or second coming or reincarnation, however you want to think of it, he's saying the same thing is going to happen with Jesus. They didn't re recognize him as coming as the Messiah, as the Christ, the first time he came. And he's saying, um, and the same thing's going to happen with the second coming as we think of it, or um, with uh, Jesus basically being reincarnated as the Son of Man, Jesus coming again, instead of as in the role as suffering Savior for our sins, instead as the conquering Messiah, uh, son of man, son of God coming to 
for basically for judgment day, the apocalypse, however you want to think of that. Jesus is letting us know that both that is true. Elijah came the first time and then came again as John the Baptist. Jesus Christ came the first time and is going to come again as the son of man. And they didn't recognize uh, Elijah the first time, tortured and tormented him till he'd had enough and was carried away divinely. And then came again as John the Baptist and suffered the same thing. He came with a message. The people, some people accepted it. The government rejected it and ended up giving him the death penalty, beheading him for a dance. Because someone twerked for the king, they ended up beheading John the Baptist for his message against what they were doing, against the governmental political authority. John the Baptist, uh, it cost him his life. Similarly, Jesus came the first time as the Christ, as the Savior, as the Messiah, speaking against the religious authority of the time and also the governmental authority. Because remember, it's the religion and the government played a part in the crucifixion. The religious people delivered Jesus up to the governmental authority, the Romans, to execute and crucify him. And he's saying, just like um, Elijah came a second time as John the Baptist, because he wasn't recognized the first time but rejected came the second time was recognized as a righteous holy person and was still rejected um jesus came the first time was recognized as a holy person just delivering a message and was still crucified is coming again a second time as a holy person and um but in a different role like i said sort of like we think of as reincarnation but not quite exactly but along those same lines. At least that's my understanding of what Jesus is talking about here. What else could he possibly be saying? Um, so, he, But he's saying, he's letting them know also that he knows that his role, his path is already paved also. That um, the rejection, the crucifixion, and the suffering already laid out. And that's the path he's on. And like I've said before, it sort of points to a big picture idea of what's going on that God is, is observing things and seeing the choices people make at the different crossroads we face. And lots of people take the elevator downstairs to the flames and very few, like Jesus says, it's a, the path is narrow and few find it that leads to life um, that goes upstairs or, you know, the elevator upstairs to the light, to the euphoric, to the utopia. Verse 13, then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So that's making it clear to us that Jesus is talking about Elijah came again as John the Baptist. And he makes it even clear. And he, in another one of the Gospels, and you can, if you're an adult, go to my website. It's hungtgirl.com and look on the body, mind, spirit and soul pages and go specifically to see the spirit or soul pages you can see there where Jesus talks about uh, its label reincarnation. And I think it's the book of Luke, um, but you can see it there where Jesus says specifically that he is John the Baptist or that he is Elijah who was to come uh, if you're willing to receive it. It's one of those messages that Jesus says, if you're willing to receive it. There's like two or three that Jesus identifies specifically that they're contingent on your willingness to believe that it's a true message, but not everyone will accept or believe it. But if you're able to accept it, then it's you can believe it. Um, and But again, not everyone will, because, you know, some people are locked into what it is they've been told or taught or believe 
about things like reincarnation, about things like circumcision, about things like the LGBT. Even though they don't align with what Jesus Christ himself says, they're locked into that belief and just refuse to believe anything else. Even though they may actually be faithful to they or believe they're being faithful to Christ or Christianity, they'll still just outright reject some teachings of Jesus himself because it's what they choose to believe. It's what they've been taught and what they cling to. And Jesus already, again, Jesus already knew it when he said it and lets us know if you're willing to believe certain things. Um, but again, not everyone is. But here are the disciples, or at least the narrator is making it clear to us that the disciples understood in that moment. That's what Jesus was saying, that John the Baptist is the sort of reincarnation of Elijah. And they both in that way are fulfilling the prophecy that Elijah was to come before the Christ does. Verse 14, and when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, so they've gone on the move and they've returned to the crowds. And that just, again, is to let us know Jesus isn't just like here, like the message I'm doing here, the naked truth, have one or two people tuning in here and there to hear it. Jesus has multitudes following him. He's got miracles and signs and wonders he's performing and doing so that huge crowds of people, thousands and thousands of people are following him. He's gone viral, in other words, but in a more significant sense, because people aren't just picking up their device to hear him or tuning on into the TV to see him. They're actually going on foot to be near him and in some cases get close to him and even touch him to tune touch to tap into the energy of what it is Jesus is putting out there, whether it be for his message or for his miracles, people are doing what they can, however they can, to get to him. Verse 15, Lord, have mercy on my son. Um, so I'm just going to read this part again. And I rec and like if you've read with me before, um, then you'll understand why. If you haven't read with me before, before you read this verse out loud, verse 15, I'd suggest you read Matthew chapter 12, verse 37, and understand why certain things in the Bible I recommend you don't read out loud. You can read them as they're written and understand them as they're written, but I'd say be careful about reading them out loud um, just because of the energy you can put into it unwittingly just by reading it out loud, out loud and putting the energy of your voice into saying it. Um, so I'm going to read it and... Uh, Lord, he's verse 15, Lord, have mercy. He's an epileptic. So he's saying his son is an epileptic and suffers severely for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So um, now I'll explain why I said it that way. I don't have any kids, at least not in this path of life that I'm in now, this timeline, this multiverse, this dimension, but it's possible in some other one that I do. So I'm not going to read it as it's written. And if you have a son or a child, um, I'd recommend, again, be careful in reading that out loud. Because you may unwittingly put that on your own child without even realizing it. And I know that sounds esoteric, maybe sounds crazy. But again, there's energy in your words, whether you believe in Christianity, some other religion, or just science. There's energy in the, in your voice, there's power in your words. Your words have consequences. Your words have power behind them. Even in a basic sense, you can just say the words, start screaming fire. 
there's energy in that. There's power in that. People are going to believe what you're saying and react to it, even if there's no fire. So even if you don't have a son, even if they don't have epilepsy, there's energy in you saying that out loud that you may actually manifest that without even realizing it. And I know, again, it may sound crazy, but it's something I would consider if I were you. And I don't even have any kids in this, like I said, in this path of life I'm in now. I don't have any kids, but I wouldn't even read that out loud if I were you. Moving on. So the, the someone's approached Jesus and he's saying that his child is an epileptic and he's and that's a, a, a disease, a neurological disease where your nerves don't quite fire um, perfectly and they cause you to shake and tremble and even go into convulsions in some cases. They can be um, fatal depending on how you react to them or how people react to you having those attacks. But generally they're not fatal but they can be terrifying i've known someone with um who has seizures um they can even happen in your sleep um but so anyway that's what his son is dealing with and he's saying his son is suffering from it and he's going to jesus for help because apparently when he gets the seizures they even happen around water and again that can be deadly because you can drown in only an inch or two of water depending on how you land in it or you know if you're unconscious in it you can end up dead in just a little bit of water. So the parent is seeking help for Jesus for his son who's an epileptic. Verse 16. Oh, one more thing. People back then, though, often thought that that disease was caused by um, supernatural forces, that someone's demon-possessed or it's some sort of evil that's possessing them, causing them to shake and tremble and all of that stuff. Um, and they'd conflate the two because some people are... Uh, plagued by demons, whether they're spiritual demons or uh, demons you find in a bottle, like drinking too much or a pipe that you might smoke too much or whatever the case may be. Those can cause you to shake and tremble too and torment you and be your own personal demons in another sense of the word, a figurative sense of the word. So people would often conflate the two because you can they're not mutually exclusive. You can have some sort of drug addiction, alcohol addiction, some other addiction, or even a physical ailment that causes you to shake and tremble all at the same time. So they don't have to exist separately. You can have more than one of those things happening. But people back then often would uh, immediately point to the supernatural, that that's what's going on with them, that they're demon-possessed. That's why they're shaking. So um, verse 16, so I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. So the man is saying he um, took his son to Jesus' disciples, to the apostles, looking for help. And the disciples didn't weren't able to um, perform the healing he was looking for. They weren't able to help him the way he was hoping. Verse 17, then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. So let's examine what Jesus said bit by bit. First, Jesus responds to him by saying, um, by saying, not just him, but he's saying the generation. So he's not just saying the man who has the child, the father. He's saying that the whole generation is perverse. Maybe not even the whole generation, but that the generation of humanity is perverse and also faithless. So there's two different things there. The faithless part is unbelieving, unfaithful, that they're not, um, um, that they don't have very much faith to believe. And I think that part he's saying may be directed toward the disciples, that they didn't have the faith 
to use the powers he imbued them with when or imbued them with when he sent them out with the message to go out and let people know the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He gave the disciples certain um, supernatural powers to do healings and to cast out demons and all sorts of perform cures and whatnot as they were on their way. Um, so to sort of affirm the message, I believe that that's why he did it. So I think that's who the faithless part is directed to. That the disciples didn't have the faith to perform the miracle. And then the part about perverse, I think he's not saying that they're perverts like peeping toms. I think he's saying they're perverse in the fact that they're perverting the meaning of the epilepsy. They don't understand or or know know that the pervert that the epilepsy isn't caused by demons or anything at all in the case of his son. Anyway, but instead it's just a, a neurological disease. It's a physical ailment that that's what's happening and that they're perverse in their knowledge of what's happening. I think that's what Jesus means when he's saying um, perverse. Um, and then he's saying, how long shall I be with you? Letting them know um, I have a message and a mission that I'm on, a ministry, and there's a timeline for it and there's um, points of it. There's things that have to be fulfilled, and then I'm on my way, letting them know he's not going to be sticking around with them every time they don't have the faith to believe for, or every time they get twisted, the meaning of what's going on around them. And um, then he finishes it, finishes it with bring him here to me, letting him know the help is here. Come to Jesus. Verse 18, and Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. So here the narrator, not Jesus, is saying that it's a demon that um, Jesus rebuked. And again, that's subtle, but it's there's a subtle difference there. It's not like Jesus told the demon to come out of him, at least not in this telling of the narrative. It's possible in one of the other gospels that that's what Jesus said. But here is the narrator saying that Jesus rebuked the demon. Um, not Jesus himself saying it. And again, it's subtle, but there's a difference. Um, but whatever the case may be, the demon did, ex he exercised, that's what it's called, an exorcism, the demon out of the child. But then look at what it says, the conjunction, and the child was cured. So that, um, and it's uh, it lets us know, maybe he had both. Maybe the person was dealing with some sort of demons, whether it's, uh, spiritual demons or figurative demons whatever the case may be jesus rebuked the demon that was plaguing the, the child but also cured him so not necessarily conflating the two the person might have been suffering from both which if you think about it there are people who deal with both i've known lots of people who are um under the on the spectrum the whether it be autism or asperger's or some other special ed, special needs type person who also is dealing with those same personal demons, whether it's alcohol—excuse me, alcoholism, alcohol, alcoholism, or substance abuse, or some other types of abuse that they're dealing with. They're not mutually exclusive. Somebody can be dealing with both, and I think that's what's. Um, either way you read it, that's what the person was dealing with there. Jesus dealt with the spiritual issue. Issue the his son was having with the demonics again whether figurative or spiritual but also dealt with his physical ailment and cured him because that's what a cure is it's um, a physical ailment that he also dealt with the epilepsy itself and it says from that hour meaning sort of instantly 
that the person got the healing, the relief that he's looking for for his son. Something the disciples weren't able to pull off. Verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? So now the disciples waited, probably humbled by the fact that they weren't able to do it and waited till they were kind of alone with Jesus to see what happened, what went wrong, why weren't we able to do it, what uh, you just did, even though we know you gave us the power to do it. So um, they're not all haughty here. They're wondering privately what happened. Verse 20, so Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So there's a whole lot there being said. First, let's start with the because of your unbelief. Um, in some versions of the Bible, it'll say because of your little faith. Um, and again, I think that points to what the first first part of what Jesus said, O faithless and perverse generation. I think he's the faithless part again was directed at the disciples. The fact that they had little faith or unbelief that that's what he was disappointed by. And that's why he's saying there, that's what he's uh, reiterating here, that it's because of your lack of faith. It's because of your unbelief that that's why you weren't able to, weren't able to do it. And then the next part of what he says, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed. So again, let him know it's a lot of it is based on faith. And and the mustard seed part is letting us know it doesn't take a whole lot of faith. That may seem like a huge statement to us, because why aren't we able to um, just pray for relief from different things that bother us? Um, when we believe we have faith that at the very least there's a God and as Christians that there is Christ and that he saved us and all of that, all of the other things we say we believe, um, we would think that at least that must be a tiny amount of faith. Um, but apparently maybe that's just a lot of lip service, things we just tell ourselves to keep from uh, going crazy. Because Jesus is saying here, if you even have faith as a mustard seed, and a mustard seed is very, 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 very tiny. Um, if you're a cook, uh, someone who cooks, even if you've seen pickles, like in a pickle jar, those little seeds at the bottom, uh, they're often mustard seeds. So let you know, but even just think of any seed, basically. Seeds are tiny. Jesus, and I think is letting us know uh, metaphorically, if you have faith that small, something that tiny amount of faith, then you can move mountains. As he's saying, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So the one part that Jesus doesn't mention there is about the timeline of things. I think that sometimes um, that's the element that's missing, that we have to have that faith, even if it's just a tiny amount of faith. But like he tells us in another part of the Gospels, and your patience possesses your souls. So you have to have faith that what you say, what you pray for, what we believe, um, that we already receive it. You have to believe that you receive it even when you pray for it, that you already got it. It's already set up for you somewhere in the timeline, in the big picture of things, even if not in that moment. But you still have to have the faith that it's yours. You have to claim it, that it's yours, and believe it, that it's yours. Um, and I think the part about moving mountains, so that even something that seems like it's impossible can actually be possible, but you have to have the faith to believe it. And as a trans person, I think trans people may be able to understand that better, or, you know, at least better than a lot of other people. Because at least in my own walk of life, my own path, 
I've known for a very, very, very long time that I was the kind of person I am, even as a little kid, maybe even all the way back to like three years old, seeing uh, wrestlers and stuff. I knew then instantly that that's what I'm attracted to, males, and that that's what's going to be for me. And like I said, I was only like three watch, um, with my watching my daddy watch um, like wrestlers and stuff on TV. And I could just, I remember even as a kid seeing men walk around all over each other in tight clothes and uh, getting sweaty and talking a lot of ish to each other. And something about that completely appealed to me. I knew that at some point down the line that that's what's for me. Not ever was I interested in um, being married to a female or with a woman like that at all. I knew from that moment, even as a little kid, that that's what was going to be for me. It took years and years and years. I was a virgin until I was 20. Um, but for it to actually come to fruition and manifest but I knew it in that moment that that was for what was for me and there were a whole lot of lonely years in between there um and even after there is just because you lose your virginity doesn't mean suddenly you're fulfilled and feel like everything falls into place it was even years after that before I really learned to embrace myself love myself and be open to loving someone else and someone loving me back and then once I was, you see that, or at least I found that love comes from all sorts of different directions. Actual love, not the pretend love like 50 Cent said so beautifully. Fake love, who needs it? And I'm paraphrasing there too. But truly, you learn, or at least I've learned, uh, I'm learning that um, you don't, everything you believe for, you. the part for us to do is to believe. That's the the faith part is to believe. And then the rest of it, it will come in time as we travel down that path if we're faithful to it. So again, you have to have the faith in the first place, even a tiny amount of faith like a mustard seed. But just like that mustard seed in just nature takes time to grow into a tree, uh, that faith, that seed of faith takes time to um, grow to fruition and actually bear fruit after that, even after it's grown. So I think our faith walk works similarly. similarly um, and that's just, you know, an example in my own life that I've seen that um, that mountain can be moved because even though I was brought up as a boy and even though I had feminine ways, even way back then, even as a little kid, um, thinking my place is with the girls, jump roping, hopscotching and stuff, and being constantly rebuked for it, not understanding why, as to me, I'm just playing, just being a kid, being a kid. I was just a kid being a kid, doing what came naturally, and yet being told left, right, and sideways that it's not natural, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. And then it took years for it to actually make sense and come together and it's still taking time now, but I think you understand what I'm saying. So I think what Jesus is letting us know, our part is to have the faith. To even even if it's just a tiny amount of faith, that that's the part we have to do. And then the rest, like a tree, will bloom and blossom on its own in its own time, even to the point of being able to move a mountain where you can be brought up a certain way as a little boy and end up growing up to be a whole other way that... um you didn't even see coming but it 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 it's the tree grown up from that seed of faith of believing that there is a path there that you're on uh whether you understand it or not you have to have the faith i believe is what jesus is letting us know that faith plays a big part in it and then patience and all the rest
all has its own part in the the the, the manifestation of things. Verse 21, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So Jesus um, is throwing another um, part of the piece of the puzzle there for us there to let us know. Some things take faith and then some things take even more than faith. They take action like prayer and fasting. The prayer that would be going to God, coming to Jesus with what's going on, um, not just trying to deal with it on your own, but actually lifting things up in prayer. Excuse me. And then fasting. That is even more. um, That's sort of like putting your money where your mouth is in a spiritual sense. Um, Exercising the faith that you have. Showing the faith that you have. Just like you'd put a down payment on something. The fasting can be the same way. And um, fasting generally is thought of as uh, food. Like not eating something. Like breakfast, the word breakfast is you're breaking the fast, you're breaking that period of fasting, you're ending that period of going without eating by eating in the morning or whenever you're eating your breakfast. That's what breakfast is. That's what breaking the fast means. But it doesn't necessarily only apply to food like we've gone over before and when we've read about fasting. You can use lots of different things um, as your fast. Um, and I guess people who are Catholic can probably understand that with the Lent, what they do at Lent and going, giving up something for those 40 days or however long they give it up. Um, you can apply that to lots of different areas of your life. And if you're interested in reading more about that, like I said, if you see it on my website, it's labeled as fasting. And, um, we go into, uh, more meaning of that deeper there, but you can also hear it here on this platform. Just look up the fasting here on Anchor or Spotify, um, it's labeled, I think, the same way as fasting. But Jesus is letting us know that's one more way to exercise or affirm or even strengthen and buttress our faith is through prayer and also through fasting. It's like putting uh, collateral with what it is we believe. It's more than just saying we believe it, but actually showing it. It's, um, yeah, I can't think of any clearer way to put it. It's because faith is something you can't see, just like love. You can't see it, but you can show it in different ways that sort of affirm it. Same thing with faith. You can say you believe in something, but your actions will show if you're actually, if you're actually not, if you're more than just talking to talk, if you're actually walking the walk, that's where the fasting comes in. That's where the prayer comes in. Not just saying you believe something or saying you want something or think something, but actually backing it up with action. Verse 22. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. So Jesus is giving us them a a prophecy, not just a prediction, because predictions are like the weather. They may or may not happen. A prophecy is a declaration that is going to happen. And all you have to do is wait and see when it does. Um, So Jesus is prophesying to them, letting them know. He, and he's saying it in the third person, the son of man. And we went over that already, why he's saying it that way, why I believe he says it that way. And he's letting them know that um, another prophecy is about to happen or another part of the prophecy is about to come true, that he's going to be betrayed um, to humanity, to humans, that they're going to stab him in the back, basically. Um, The crucifixion, that's what's on its way. And Jesus is letting them know before it comes so that they don't think, oh, they caught him by surprise. They snared him. No, he knew that's the path he was going to go on already. And he's declared it to 
the disciples again and again and again so that they shouldn't be surprised by it. But instead, they should say, wow, you know what? He knew that that was going to happen and he still continued on his ministry anyway. Verse 23, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. So Jesus not only let them know that those prophecies from the scriptures that they've been told about, that they've been watching for, like the Elijah coming before, um, like that prophecy in the scriptures has already come to pass with John the Baptist and his ministry and death. He's saying just like that. Similarly, he's got a path he's on and it's going to lead to suffering. It's going to begin with the betrayal. And remember, not just Judas. Judas isn't the only one who betrayed him. Peter denied him three times. All the disciples forsook him and fled when he got arrested. So um, all of that is part of that betrayal. And he's letting them know. And he was betrayed into the hands of men. The Roman authorities and the religious leaders arrested him and then crucified him. So he's letting them know he knows all of that's on its way. Um, and, you know, it made them sorrowful to know that that's what lies ahead for for him and them. And then not to mention the killing part. So he's letting them know um, they're going to kill him. And so remember the commandment is thou shalt not kill. That's one of the big ten said in the Old Testament, affirmed by Jesus in the New Testament, and yet people will thump their Bibles in modern times and say, oh no, the death penalty isn't taught, isn't killing. Sure it is. Jesus is going to face the death penalty. John the Baptist faced the death penalty. And Jesus here is calling it kill. So it is breaking that commandment. And the religious people who thump their Bibles, as we say, obviously it wasn't a Bible back then, it's their scriptures, are the ones who are going to be behind it. Just like in modern times, how the religious right, as they call themselves, as they label themselves, as they pretend to be, claim to be Christian, claim to be God-fearing people, and yet they don't care about that at all. They care about keeping guns alive. There's more guns in America than people. And that seems to be what the religious right are more focused on. That's who they call their God. Because they ignore what Jesus says. Because if they did, then why would they be for so much killing? And not just the gun people, but um, the um, government itself. How can it be a God-fearing government, a Christian nation, and yet endorse the death penalty when the Christ himself went through the death penalty? It's killing. Jesus just said it himself that he's going to be killed. And it's going to be the government and the religious leaders who do it. Just like in modern times, even though innocent people like Jesus and John the Baptist uh, were condemned by the death penalty and killed by it. Same thing happens nowadays. Statistics have shown innocent people have died from the death penalty. And yet religious people uh, thump their Bibles and say they're pro-death penalty. And yet they also the same people say they're also pro-life. So they say they're against abortion. And yet, like we've read on our Monday and Wednesday readings, uh, the Old Testament affirms abortion in, in the case of adultery. It even goes through the ceremony and ritual of how it's to be carried out. And yet, people will ignore all of that and still cling to whatever, whatever it is they want to believe. Just like Jesus says, if you're willing to accept it. And again, people just believe whatever they want to and reject even the written word right there in black and white or in this case red. Verse 24, when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax. Oh, wait, did we miss something? 
Oh, I missed the most important, uh, probably one of the most important parts. He let them know the suffering he was going to face. He let them know the betrayal he was going to go through and endure. But he also let them know that he's going to be raised up, the resurrection. Let them know that that wasn't going to be the end of the story. Just like he knows the path ahead for him has that suffering and betrayal. He also knows that the path continues with the resurrection. And the resurrection should be affirmed to the disciples in the fact that they just saw Elijah, someone who also had already passed. Moses, someone who had also already passed, but yet alive there right before them, resurrected, reincarnated, however you want to think of it. They saw them right there uh, with Jesus when he was transfigured right there before them. So maybe it didn't make sense to the disciples. Maybe it doesn't make sense to us completely now, but it seems to me that's what Jesus is doing, letting them know that even though these paths are there and he knows he's on them, that the path doesn't end with the death. It doesn't end with the betrayal, with the arrest, with the crucifixion. It doesn't end there. He knows that there's life on his path ahead. But again, it's if you're willing to believe it, if you're willing to receive it, if you're willing to accept it. Verse 24, when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? So we've read about this on our Monday and Wednesday readings. The religious authorities are set up and they've made uh, it a business. They've made religion a business. The one thing Jesus went off for, uh, you know, flipped tables over was the fact that they turned God's house into a marketplace. They made seeking God about money. They made it about making sure you have the money or the cow or the goat or the sheep or whatever it is that's going to cost you, make sure, make sure you have that before you show up to the temple. And here in this case, it's the tax, the money. Do you make, uh, make sure you have that temple tax before you show up here? So that's not what it's supposed to be about. You're not supposed to have money on your mind when you're going to see God. That's, um, that's not what it's supposed to be about. Um, so what are the, what are they doing? They've set, they, just like we've read on our Monday and Wednesday readings, the religious people set up the different laws and statutes and ordinances beyond the Ten Commandments that Moses was given in the narrative. They've set up all sorts of things after that that they seem to be exempt from, um, but that the people are subject to. And usually they boil down to follow the law. If you break the law, they'll cite you for it and let you know the fine you have to pay, whether it be goats, chickens, sheep cows, whatever it may be, they've set up it as a, they've set it up as a business that they are the enforcers of. So they tell you the law, they enforce it and they collect the money for it. And that's what they're doing here is letting them know, uh, what's up? You, there's a temple tax. Uh, he ain't paying it. They're asking, is Jesus going to pay them? Or is he going to pay the temple tax? Verse 25. Uh, but he's asking, they're asking the disciples. They're asking Peter. He said, yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? So Jesus already knows what's on Peter's mind. That's who he's talking to. Sometimes he's called Peter. Sometimes he's called Simon. But either way, it's the same disciple Jesus is talking about and talking to in this instance. And so before Peter can even say anything, Jesus comes at him with a question. You, often Jesus answers their questions with a question, especially with when the religious folks uh, confront him about different things. In this instance, he's asking the question before he even gets asked the question. 
And the question he's asking is about the taxes and the collection of them. What, who do the people, who do the ruler, rulers collect the taxes from? Um, from their own sons and their own kids or from strangers? And we know in modern times, uh, judging by how America is run, the taxes are collected from the poor. The 1%, the richest 1% in this country, it's been shown again and again and again, the wealthy get away with not paying taxes at all, whether they're corporations or whether they're individuals. Look how long it's taken for them to go after the previous president and all the um, tax um, stuff he did or is accused of or suspected of doing. It's taken years and years and years. Let it be you. They'll dedicate years and years and years to going after you even for a few dollars to make sure you pay it. So it lets you know, they don't go after the rich, they don't go after the wealthy, they get to slide by on not paying taxes. But let you skip a tax or miss a tax, they're gonna be on your A. They'll be on your A as in assets, as in assets with liens and for, forfeit or as and seizures of whatever it is you have to make sure they collect what it is they believe you owe. Whereas the wealthy can just not pay it. They'll set up the tax system in the first place where they don't have to pay the taxes. And then if they choose not to pay them, they spend lots of years just letting them get away with it so they can continue to make more money on the taxes they didn't pay. So when they do have to pay, it's a drop in the bucket. It doesn't even affect their bottom line. Yet the strangers, as Jesus says, um, aren't subject to those sorts of privileges. Their own sons get those kind of privileges. The wealthy, the 1%, get those kind of privileges. But don't you try and flex any of those because you won't get those kind of privileges. So Jesus is letting them know, uh, just like in modern times, it was the same way back then. The Caesars aren't collect making their own children uh, pay up their ta- the taxes they owe to make sure society continues to run. They're making sure the little person pays. They're making sure the commoner pays um, so that they can get paid, so that they can be enriched. You see it with the same thing with law enforcement, where they're paid to protect and serve the citizenry. And yet, if they uh, murder unarmed citizenry, if they uh, brutalize the citizenry, they still get paid. They may get suspended with pay. They may get fired and get to just go to another job where they get paid. And either way, they still get their pensions. It just makes no sense. That's all paid by the same citizenry that they've been abusing. And yet, that's how it is. They collect the money from the com- the lower person and let the wealthy get away scot-free. It, nothing's new. It's the same thing that was happening back then. Verse 26, Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. So Peter's answering um, what makes sense. The the government doesn't collect the money from their own uh, children, from their own relatives. They collect it from strangers. They collect it from the nobodies, the little people. That's who they collect the, the funds from. They aren't gathering it from the wealthy. And so Jesus is saying, also then the sons are free, letting them know, yeah, just like it works with people that um they don't, hassle their own kids with making sure they pay up the sons are free from those um their sons are exempt from those demands Uh, like i was saying with the religious leaders they'll set up those laws for the people to follow but they're exempt from having to follow them and you see that um in modern times with the religious organizations the different um 
organizations that keep getting caught abusing children, sexually abusing children, not for one or two years, but for generations. It's sick. And yet you see them get away with it. They shuffle them around, move them to a different um, a different building, different organization, where they just end up molesting or abusing other children. Um, yet, if some of the people who are a part of the congregation get caught up in any of that, they get instant condemnation. They have to pay all sorts of fines and fees if they don't end up imprisoned over it. Uh, and all of that dragged through the mud over those different things. Uh, but their own people are exempt from them. Similarly, um, that's how governments, unfortunately, works too. When it doesn't have to be that way. If they took the same effort in getting a fraction of um, the taxes from their own, then the people wouldn't be so burdened. And yet, that's not where that's not how it works. The corruption keeps it from being that way. So Jesus is making it, is drawing the parallel, letting um, so that we can see it, so that disciples understand that it's the same way with the religious organization that they're the 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 religious leaders are collecting those customs and taxes and temple taxes from the people, but they're not actually paying any of those things. And we've read about them on our Monday and Wednesday readings, where if the people show up and they've been cited for some offense or sin, they better show up with their offering, better show up with the goats or the cows or whatever it is they're required of them. And only a memorial portion of that is dedicated to God, is burnt in fire or whatever, however it's offered. The rest goes to the priests. They get to get fattened up by the process that they've set up, by the, the the legal system they've arranged for the people to be governed by, but they get to be exempt from. Uh, verse 27, Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you've opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you to do this so that you can uh, so that you don't offend them in their uh religious order. Just like he says when he um tells um someone he heals to make an offering as a testimony to them. He's not saying that they have that they should be offering those animals up um because that that's what's considered righteous in God's eyes. No, he tells them I think it was a leper that he cleansed of the leprosy. He tells them to make the offering that Moses requires as a testimony to them. Not because Jesus is saying, at least I don't believe it's because Jesus is telling us that's what we still need to be doing every time we get healed of some skin disease, eczema or whatever. Because that's one of the diseases listed in the Bible by name also in the Old Testament. That if you get healed of it, you're supposed to make a, a animal sacrifice for it, for the healing. Um, I don't think Jesus is saying it to affirm that that's what you're supposed to be doing. He's saying it specifically as a testimony to them so that the religious people who are putting that burden on you understand that um, those healings can take place by God through another way. And it's to act as a witness so that even the religious people who are teaching you that dogma can't deny it. Because why else would you go ahead and make that offering unless you had actually been delivered, healed of whatever it is you were suffering from? So I think that's why Jesus tells them in that instance to um, make that offering. And that's why he's saying it in this instance, I think, to um, the, um, to um, make the, to oh, well, to make the offering of what, to pay the taxes so that it doesn't offend in their religion. Because their religion is who's ruling the day. They're the law enforcement at that time, uh, the religious law enforcement. But look at what it is Jesus tells them to do. 
it sounds like you would experience in a video game like in Simon's Quest or something where you have to go on a mission meet up with this person do this deed and get this act and then you'll get the token you'll get the money Jesus is telling them to do the same thing and he does this also when it came to just before the crucifixion when he tells them to go find the upper room where they're gonna have what we call the Last Supper um, to go to a person in the city they'll meet you with a pitcher of water and so on and so forth He's telling them, giving them specific orders, what it is they have to do, how it is they have to interact with nature, in this case, with a fish. He's saying to cast a hook and catch a fish, and that nature itself will provide what it is, the money that the um, religious order is seeking, so that they're not expected to go in their own pockets to fulfill the religious demands, the dogma, but instead go to nature, in this case, and it will provide the obedience to what it is Jesus is telling them to do will provide what it is the religious order is demanding of them and I think that's sort of the hidden message there that when we run into the dogma that religion will try and cast on you don't let that stick to you but if, if you're in, in the position they are so as not to offend them in whatever dogma they've set up then instead be obedient to what it is Jesus tells us to do and I think that's the hidden message of, uh, not even hidden, that's the message of red letter Christianity. Focus on what it is Jesus tells us to do. Be obedient to what it is Jesus tells us to do, regardless of what religious dogma may instruct us to do. Be obedient to what it is Jesus tells us to do. Even if it sounds like something crazy, like going fishing. And that's what he's telling them to do, go fishing. And when you are obedient to what, when they're obedient to what Jesus tells them to do, They'll find what it is that the religion is seeking from them. And um, and he's telling them, and then take that and give it to them for me and you. Use that to pay the temple taxes. Use that to meet the demands of the religious dogma that they're surrounded by. Use that to fulfill what it is that's expected of them from the society that surrounds them. Um, just like I said, like with Simon's Quest or some other video game where you have to go on a mission and meet certain things. Certain things have to be done, Zelda, before you can um, fulfill the mission. He's sending them similarly on a mission to be obedient to what it is he's telling them to do in order to fulfill what it is the situation calls for. Um, that's the last verse in this chapter. So that's the last verse of this reading. As always, I appreciate you checking it out with me and hope it's a blessing for you. And I hope you'll join me again. Like I said, we do the Old Testament readings on Mondays and Wednesdays, but we focus on what it is Jesus has to say on these Saturday readings. And uh, you can hear the past readings here on Anchor and Spotify or um, the Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Or like I said, if you're an adult, you can go to my platform, hungtgirl.com. It's free. And get to know me, your humble messenger, as much as I can let you know there. Uh, and my birthday is coming up next week. God willing, I'll get to live to see it and celebrate it. I've, I've already started lining up some of the party favors for it. So God willing, that works out. Hope you celebrate with me and I hope you stay safe. Um, God bless you and I'll see you next time. Peace be with you.